This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. anything cool in the snow it wasn't packy enough to build anything mm. but i did bury susanna in the snow so oh good how's she in doing a way i there? built something she did fine she made okay. a snow angel great uh i imitated the panda from the smithsonian zoo there was a great photo of him that morning rolling around in the snow so yeah, i had yeah. to i'd do that uh, and then I built a dinosaur ass snow. It was pretty cool. I know you love pandas, but pandas are too dumb to live. Let's talk about that. Nope. Let's not talk about that. Welcome <laughs> to Overdue Podcast. It's a podcast about the books that you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. And I couldn't. I remembered extra words that I don't normally say because I didn't want you to hate on pandas anymore. Let's talk about snow. I think Central Park got like the second highest snowfall, like the one day snowfall. Yes. That it had gotten like since Ever? we started keeping track of snow. Uh-huh. <laughs> so that was good. Uh-huh. It was good. It yeah, snowed. Think... It started um Friday night and went all the way to Saturday night. And I know like you love snow for its own sake, but the thing that I love about really heavy snowstorms or like hurricanes or any like huge natural disaster, now as long as it's not like endangering my life, is I kind of like to see how fragile the threads of like society are <laughs> okay because it snowed two feet in one day and everything like shut down yes everything and, and everyone started using the word emergency in a very literal way yeah like this is actually an emergency it's not like a clothing emergency or like a like a i need a hamburger emergency it's like how emergency? you normally use <laughs> the word emergency it was really like this is serious y'all yeah, it is serious. It's some real stuff. There, are, uh, I just watched a news story about an, an Uber driver who's not going to be able to to do his rounds because his the city won't plow his street. He can't oh, make no. a living. That's his. Oh, that's no. his livelihood. Actually, <laughs> they showed his car and it's completely covered in snow. <laughs> Jeez, this is the world. I know, we yeah, live they in. like suspended service. Like Broadway canceled all its shows. The New York Times did this big piece on all the people who came from all over the country. And paid a thousand dollars to see Hamilton, and then yeah. they were just like, "Oh, you can have your money back, but you can't see Hamilton." <laughs> Is that like a companion piece to the the like op-ed about how much someone like all the things that someone didn't pay in their life so that they could buy a ticket to Hamilton? I don't know, maybe. Ugh. I just want to go see Hamilton. Let's talk about. You should do that. I probably should. Yeah, uh, we're going to talk about your book, Andrew. Whatever it is, uh-huh. this week. But I think we want to talk about mailbag first. Yeah, let's go mailbag. For the record, my book this this week is Laylene Paul's The Bees, which okay. is about bees. But uh, so sit tight if you want to hear us talk about that. But we're going to dig into the mailbag first. Yeah, we got a couple of emails some, like, that came in at... Yeah, because right. I we got I the printed, mail out. What, what <laughs> I did printed was I email. printed all of the emails out and then I mailed them to Andrew. <laughs> 
And then he just rustled through them. Now I'm going to read them. He's okay. holding them up to the camera. Well, you're going to read. The, I have the hard copy, but you're going to read the, the electronic version. All right. You let me know if anything got lost in translation. Okay, sure. So last week on our Canical for Leibowitz episode, I kind of gave short shrift to the character, the beggar character who crops up once or twice in each part of the book. And he's he's largely unnamed. They call him Benjamin at one time. They call him Lazarus in another chapter. And I didn't really consider this one image that a couple people wrote in about. And Hardy is just one who, who mentioned this to us. Uh, Hardy wrote in to overduepod at gmail.com. Just listened to your Leibowitz episode and wanted to drop you a line about Benjamin Lazarus, the old wandering guy. Uh, when I read it, I thought that he was meant to be the wandering Jew, which is a figure from Christian folklore, who, according to legend, was present at Jesus' crucifixion and laughed at or just generally mocked him when he was on the cross. Uh, because of this blasphemy, God cursed him to wander the earth until the second coming. Hence why, if Benjamin is the wandering Jew, he dejectedly says it's not him when Thon Taddeo is coming to the Abbey. Uh, alternatively, he could be, as the third section suggests, Lazarus, uh, but Miller was probably like uh, evoking the wandering Jew, he says. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I had not... A couple other people wrote that, and some people put that on our Facebook. Annie put that on our Facebook. And I had not considered that at all. We did a play at my theater this year about the wandering Jew. See, like, I can I at least cite ignorance. It. Like, I'm not yeah. familiar with that with that trope. It's, it's an interesting thing because... So the uh, the idea, Andrew, is that this guy... I had not heard the version where he like literally mocks Jesus, but Jesus like tries to rest on his stoop. This is in a play called Underneath the Lintel by Glenn Berger. It's really good. If anybody knows doing it, go watch it. Mm-hmm. Um, and he tries to rest on this guy's stoop and he says, no, go away. Like he tells Jesus to shove off basically. <laughs> and Jesus looks at him and goes, okay, uh, you shall not. Or he says, I, I will go and you shall tarry or something like that. And so the wandering Jeez. Jew is doomed to stay on earth until Jesus returns, like when the Messiah returns. God, let the punishment fit the crime, I guess. Like, well, the, you wouldn't Jesus let Jesus is, sit down on your stoop yeah. for a second. So now you're doomed to wander the earth for all eternity. And this, so this myth has a lot of problems for everyone involved, like. For what you just said is the wow, Jesus and or God is really like, a jerk. Jesus, like I Jesus, thought, like, I thought the whole, come on, <laughs> I thought the whole point of the New Testament Jesus was that he was about like hugs and like bunny rabbits and stuff. Um, but the other thing is that it then paints like it's not a especially kind myth towards Jews either, mm-hmm. um, because it presents the central character as one worthy of eternal like on earth damnation sure for mocking the messiah um so like neither it and and then it kind of has like a resonance for the jewish people and being uh unfortunately for large parts of history uh a culture without a homeland yeah and a displaced people Uh, and i've seen stories that handle it well that like take ownership over that myth and try to try to make good on it but it's certainly yeah it's not great um like i've I gotta i'm trying to think i'm trying to justify that behavior in my mind and like the only thing i can think of is that behavior? jesus like jesus's like his his seemingly disproportionate response to this thing that happened sure. 
Sure. Like he's willing to forgive pretty much anything, but if you don't let him sit on your stoop, like, sorry, buddy. <laughs> well, he is literally carrying the cross at the time. He must have been Oh, I well, I didn't know that part. I was just okay. gonna say that he must have been hungover and he was like trying he was sitting on the stoop, like holding his head and just trying to like sit for a second. I've got these guys following me around. I just need some time to think. And then the guy like comes out and says, don't sit on my soup, Jesus. And he's like, you know, I'm I try to be a good guy, but I this today is not the day for this. And then he curses the guy to wander the earth forever. That's yeah, that's another version. That one. That's my that's the the uh, the King Cunningham version. Yeah. 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 That that particular translation. (laughs) From the original Greek or whatever. So that's the wandering Jew. I, I think the the other part of it that I've heard is that the Jew can't say his name. He can't tell people that that's what's going on. So there's also a displacement of like his own identity, which mm-hmm. is supposed to make it even worse. Uh, we got another email in from Graham, who responded to our discussion last week about like never seeing a light bulb before. He commiserated Andrew with your, uh, like, computer leapfrogs, right? Yeah. Um, and also going to broadband internet. But he also said that his dad was a professional photographer, so uh, the first digital camera he used was amazing um, because that was – he had never seen – you know, that's a big deal if your dad spends his whole life, like, in dark rooms and dealing with film – yeah, I mean, it's not even the development side of it, but, like, the photography side of it in the first place. Like, yes. di- digital photography, I think, lowers the barrier to entry because anybody can take, like, 200 pictures and pick out the dozen good ones instead of having to know all the stuff about, like, framing your shot and composition and stuff and, like, making every shot count. I know that some people lament, like, that precision i guess but, there, there's uh, a a lot of people lament that in the same way with writing as well right like you can just type into a into a word doc or you could have to scrawl with limited amounts of ink on limited amounts of paper mm-hmm. so you don't have to choose your words very carefully without a spell check yeah i can just try out a bunch of sentences and then make them all go away if i don't like how this sounds yeah i'm a word wizard <laughs> words be gone a terrible made on tv <laughs> invention uh graham also responded to something from our bossy pants episode he's been working his way through the back catalog obviously we were talking about whether or not when it was okay to have a child in your career and like when you when you were allowed to slow down uh when you're climbing the ladder mm-hmm. and he says at some point getting married and or having children actually helps your career rather than hurting it particularly if you're in management There's a lot of unconscious bias in being the only unmarried person in their late 20s when your peers are all suddenly in their 40s and 50s. No matter how you get along with them, you're one of the youths somewhere deep in their lizard brain. Ugh, youths. I'm certain that that in a couple of decades I'll do the same thing to the new youths. And he's using like (laughs) five O's and bold and italics. Uh, But that will be different in some way, obviously. Because once he and his wife got married, they noticed everyone seemed more comfortable with them. And the same thing happened when they had their first child. Well, congratulations on your first child in June. Um, I, I wonder, too, if there's an element of the reverse happening. It's not just people going, oh, you're finally growing up. Welcome to the club. I think I I am even just learning as I hop on the marriage train that then I enter a world of shared experience with people 
and people who are 10 years older than me, suddenly I, I have a window into stuff they've already dealt with or, or felt. Yeah, like, I mean, even even in what you're doing, like in the run-up into it, um, I've talked to people, and, and maybe we've discussed this on the show before. I really have to, like, stop worrying about what we've talked about on the show before because we've just talked about everything at this yep. point. But, um, like, you, if you are the type of person who gets your feelings hurt when you're not invited to a wedding and I'm not like, that's a totally legitimate way to feel. And it maybe like, it does, if it does feel bad for a lot of reasons, like maybe you're not as close to that person as you, you want to be or as you used to be. And it really does suck. But once you plan a wedding for yourself, Uh you totally get why people get bumped. (laughs) Because like oh, if yeah. I like in a universe where I had unlimited space and money, yeah, you can come to my wedding. But <laughs> <laughs> it's gonna be at Shea Stadium, which doesn't exist anymore. So I rebuilt it, and the yeah. Beatles are gonna play because mm-hmm. I reanimated the ones that aren't alive anymore. Mm-hmm. And you can all come, yes, except Donald Trump. No, you have to watch from the sidelines. No, you can't even watch. <laughs> Go away. But no, it's you. Yeah, everybody has that experience where like, oh, yeah, I made a Google spreadsheet where I separated my friends into like three different tiers based on how likely I think they are to be <laughs> invited to the wedding. Like, yeah, I did that. Uh-huh. They were a, doing that in the 80s. That's old yeah, school. It's a whole thing. And and yeah, when you're especially when you're talking to people like you who you've never met or you haven't talked to in a while. And yeah, like any. Any guaranteed shared experience like weddings or wedding planning, like that's an in that you can use to get more comfortable. So, yeah, yeah. yeah I'm, I'm glad that Graham said that. I do think it's a two way street. It's, it isn't just people giving you more credit. I think it innately makes you give other people a little more credit when you realize what they've been through. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's the mailbag for this week. We don't always have time for it, but we're reading a slightly newer book this week. So and we had I'm gonna, such going to put all the mail away real quick. Just like. Great. Back in the um, bag. I heard you uh, crumple up an email from Mike and an email from Mika. Oh, I thought we were uh, done. <laughs> no, I just want to give them shout outs. I'm not going to hold on. Get them. Oh. All right. Back out. Great. Mike uh, just referred us again to the list of Latin phrases from Canticle for Leibowitz. It was on Wikipedia. And Mika uh, also recommended the story of O uh, in response to our Fifty Shades episode. So we'll might, we might tackle that uh, a couple episodes down the line. Get rid of that mail, Andrew. Okay. All right, Great. it's gone, gone forever. Welcome to the rest of the show, Andrew. What book did you read, and who is it by? Uh, like I said earlier, if you had been paying attention, I nope. read "The Bees" by Laylene Paul. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, she is an author, playwright, and screenwriter, and the daughter of first-generation Indian immigrants. And this is her first published novel, not the first that she worked on. She had another novel that apparently is in the bottom of a desk drawer somewhere and she's glad that it's in the bottom of a desk drawer <laughs> like i think a lot of writers are sure but uh, yeah she's uh she's this is her first book and she published it like while like well into middle age like she's not like a young writer or anything yeah she's got a daughter and a couple uh stepsons and yeah. she uh this was published in 2014 yes right? okay. yeah okay so pretty recent. Uh, and she, uh, and yeah, I, I, I mean, I bring that up only because like because as with most contemporary authors, like there is not as much information on them. And a lot of the information that you get is from 
their website, which has been put together by like them personally or by a PR person like working on behalf of them personally. And there is an interesting quote. Um, the bees has brought many brilliant people into my life and opened many doors to find your wings in middle age is a great gift. And I'm proof you're never too old to be bold. That's that just like so I thought that me, was a nice sentiment. That just filled me with a little bit of warmth there. Yeah, that's yeah. pretty good. Yeah, yeah, I I I think about that a lot actually, as someone who's tried to overachieve as much as possible in my twenties. Uh, that it's like, yeah, it's okay to feel unsatisfied. Other stuff's gonna show up. Yeah, and I mean, you it's like as a recent thirty-year-old, like you especially when you get to the point in your twenties where you are, where you feel like it's like draining away, like the sands and a scattergories hourglass or whatever, <laughs> like, <laughs> like just, sands through the scategories. Yeah. These you're just, well, nah, categories has a timer. What's a like who cranium has an hourglass, like a cranium hourglass. Let's say that. Um, it just, it feels like it's draining away and you're like, oh, I'm getting up to this arbitrary barrier and have I done everything that I wanted to? And it like, you, you still like everything willing, like whatever, (laughs) whatever universal divine force or not you choose to believe in, like you've still got a lot of time left. Yeah. They're working on, they're working on climate change. You got time. Uh, yeah, someone will fix it, right? <laughs> someone will figure it out. Uh, it's worth noting, Lilene's, as we said, also a playwright. She's had a couple plays done at the National Theater, including one called Boat Memory about Charles Darwin, which actually I'm probably going to go try and track down because it sounds pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, it's about a mission to return some teens from Patagonia. Ugh, hashtag uh, teens. Hashtag teens from <laughs> hashtag patagonia uh and whether or not they are you know going to be made into christians or not so i i feel like i'll be interested to to hear about what she's tackling sociologically in the bees yeah um and kind of her sense of class and or uh race in this book um it seems like something she's interested as an artist yeah yeah and um it's what one of the things that's the most interesting about this book is how she blends that human element with like the biological realities of bees. <laughs> <laughs> it's done like much, much more intricately than you might think at first, at first blush. But we'll, we'll talk about in a second. There were first, there were a couple other quotes from her website that I wanted to that I wanted to read. Uh, one on uh, being a writer. And one on um, on just her like writing process. So the, the one on her process is, uh, uh, my writing shed is also a hideout in the garden, and I spend a lot of time watching the local wildlife. I procrastinate with binoculars, following differing bees, amused by squirrel battles, and I'm struck by the power of paying attention, how readily the world reveals itself. I saw a dove arch its wings back and hiss at a rat to drive it away. Is she writing, like, red, red wall stories? No, but... but- Again, like in this book, you see you see a lot of examples of of the truth of what bees do being stranger than fiction. Like I'm mm. so okay. So I write mostly nonfiction, but lately, as you know, I've been writing a Dungeons and Dragons campaign to run <laughs> on the side. <laughs> on the side. <laughs> on the side. I've got my side hustle, and. Uh, <laughs> 
like I don't I don't write fiction a lot like I don't just make stuff up and so this is making me use parts of my brain that I haven't used in a while and uh-huh. like while I'm doing research on like how blimps work or like what rats are like or whatever like you'll find things mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. inspire you to work like to work stuff in because it's like it's so much crazier than anything you could have made up yourself you know well yeah I'll, I'll find the same things when I'm working on a show, I still remember a couple of years ago when I was doing that show about French World War One dudes. Like, I found this movie from only 20 or 30 years after that war where everyone, there was like a vision quest section where like everyone who had died like came back to the small village and like totally freaked everyone out. And it was this sense that France couldn't escape the generation of men that they'd lost. And it's like, yeah, that was represented in the death toll but it was also being represented in art at the time and then that becomes yeah. like a thing that you take into into the creative work mm-hmm. it's it's how the research becomes the art which is always fun yeah yeah, yeah. Um, or just then, you know doves and rats living together <laughs> <laughs> mass hysteria <laughs> and then the other thing about about um her like making yourself a better writer that I just thought was kind of interesting, even though it's apropos of not a lot in our, in, in the discussion that we're going to have. Uh, when I had my daughter, I stopped writing for television and started writing for the theater because time had become more precious and storytelling by committee didn't suit me. Working with actors is great. They are the word They are the word made flesh being in rehearsal exposes you and makes you a better writer. And I know that like I picked that quote out because I thought that you would have a response to it. Yeah. Like have you like you occasionally will work with somebody on a play that they are still kind of actively developing and kind of like conveying things to them based on like, okay, here's what you've written on the page and here's how is what you have written is working out with real people doing it. Yeah, it's a tricky it's a tricky sticky wicket, right? Uh she's right to point out that the writer's room environment I I you know, I don't know firsthand what the writer's room environment for a television show is like but from what i understand they're not necessarily doing like rewrites on the fly uh f- based on the actors unless the actors are like involved in producing the show yeah i mean right? it, it depends on the show like some shows have totally separate actors in writing rooms and then some have a lot of crossover and bleed yeah. over and stuff and um, i think that's that's actually been um like in the in the mid to late 2000s like mm-hmm. going forward, especially, I think that wall has come down a lot for shows like The Office and um, Parks and Recreation, and and a lot of them, like a lot of them, have people who write and also act on the show. And so I think, yeah, it's that's a relatively recent phenomenon where you have the writers being so directly involved in what yeah. is actually and being for, shot. And for drama, you're seeing a more and more uh, attention being given to the writers of individual episodes. I think mm-hmm. than ever before. Yeah. Um, but for for the theater, it's really about like honing the fact, honing the writing to sustain uh, a playable action in in duration. Like actors have to live with your play the same way the audience does in the same amount of time. It's not like TV. It's not like film. So the rhythm is far more important for like telling the act telling actor what to physically do in the room and what and how they're going to feel about it because it's not just like oh do another take get another shot and move on Mm -hmm. um so 
bringing the playwright into the rehearsal room can often be very helpful to just hear, have them hear rhythms and suggest line changes for clarity. Uh, but then also like reporting back from the room is a different thing. Cause it's like, yeah, they were this, whenever it's a, you're working on a play by like a dead playwright, there's always this, like everyone's in the trenches together against the play. <laughs> and e- and that's even the best plays, right? Because it's like we're all in the room together, and we're going to solve this play for us, but and make the best version of this play for yeah, us. It's like it's like fighting against zombies. Yeah, basically, and like the zombies are just zombies, and there's nothing you could do to reason with them because they're dead already. Yeah, <laughs> but imagine if it out. imagine if one of the zombies wasn't dead, and you could like ask them to be a slightly different zombie. Mm-hmm. If the if it agreed with the type of zombie they set out to be in the first place, that's a terrible metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> but if but, it if it worked as a metaphor, it would be a keen observation on what the the relationship between a director and an act like actors and a living breathing playwright. Yeah, is. I, I there's a lot of useful med, uh, metaphors around uh, midwifing that I prefer that I have Yikes. not prepared for today's podcast. Honestly, but like you're like a you're you're not a director. You're more like a, a play doula. I'm a play doula. Thank you, <laughs> thank you. We should probably take a quick break, Andrew, and then we'll come back and talk about the book. Uh yeah, we probably should. Craig, what if bees had websites? <laughs> what if they had websites? <laughs> they would probably need some help, though, because they don't have fingers and they don't know how to code. Andrew, who could we turn to for help? I, I would direct them over to our friends at Squarespace. Uh, they provide intuitive and easy-to-use tools to make professional-looking websites, and you don't need to know any code or any stuff that a bee wouldn't know. <laughs> okay. Okay, mm-hmm. and it's like secure and stable, right? Because bees have a lot of stuff to do. They can't be worrying about like salted passwords and locked down stores and stuff, right? Squarespace yeah, I mean, take care of that. Squarespace is trusted by millions of people and some of the most respected brands in the world, including us. Yeah, so true. respected because of our sick bee jokes. We do we do use Squarespace and bees. Last I checked, don't have a lot of money. Can a bee afford this, Andrew? Well, it starts at $8 a month, and you get a free domain if you sign up for a year. So if you wanted to start floorofthebee.com or .biz or whatever. .bees. .bees. Bees.biz. (laughs) Beesbuzz.biz. I think you could do it. So if you go to Squarespace, you start your free trial site, you type stuff in with your little stinger, and you, you just make it look good. Uh, You can do that with no credit card required. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, use the offer code OVERDUE and you get 10% off your first purchase. So if you are a thrifty bee who's trying to make a great looking website, we're here to hook you up. Do it today. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. We're back. Hi. Oh, hey. Whoa. Whoa. So... Let's talk about bees finally. Yeah, let's talk about bees. I've been waiting bees. for this all day. Bees. What the heck is this book? For, where did you hear about this book? You're supposed to be reading about clowns and you decide to read about bees. <laughs> What's going on? <laughs> uh, so, yeah. So, my wife, Susanna, read this um, a few months ago and liked it. And then, like, gave... Like, she she will sometimes, like, read a book and then 
like give it away to somebody because like I've I've read this I've absorbed this stuff in it and I'm probably not going to read it again which is like totally fine so she'll give it to somebody else to experience it goes yes. like goes back to that Battlestar Galactic thing about never lending books that's for yeah that's where that came from yeah I'm sure from Battlestar Galactica <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and then uh, our friends over at Book Riot this week tweeted that the that uh, the bees the Kindle version was available on Amazon for two bucks, and I was like, I'm not going to be able to finish this 1,100 page Stephen King book by Sunday, so I should probably <laughs> I should grab something else. And this looks this looks good, so that's okay. what happened. Great, that's welcome, welcome to how this show works. Okay, so what is this book about other than just bees. like it's bees. about bees. Bees. It's called the bees. The bees, yeah. The bees, the bees, the bees, the bees, the bees, the bees, the bees. All right, so let's uh, let's. What do we want to do first? Do we want to do plot stuff? Do we want to want to do like how the book is set up? Do we, like what? What are you what the most interested? The heck in? is it? It's. I've heard that it's like it's about a bee, right? It's not, but it's not like it's about a bee, bee and a hive bee. of bees. It's like. I guess I would say if you were going to sum it up in one like overly simplistic sentence, I would say it's like the handmaid's tale with bees. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> okay. And it's not exactly like that, but I there this it owes a lot to Margaret Atwood, I think. Okay. In ways that we'll talk about in a little bit, but yeah, it's it follows this one bee, uh Flora 717, mm-hmm. uh from her birth until her death. Okay. And uh so she's she is born into this hive and uh she's she is part of this f- this flora class of bees uh who are like sanitation workers they're very low on the totem pole like bee wise mm-hmm. and their job is to clean up the hive so clean up waste clean up like dead bees like just keep <laughs> keep things running smoothly okay but like never actually have a lot of power or like influence or love in the hive <laughs> okay um uh, and the, and like they're satisfied with it because they're bees and they don't they're bees and they don't care that much okay but i mean that does it does get a little complicated later on so so she is born and the fertility police which apparently is a thing that actual beekeepers call certain kinds of bees and we'll talk about that a little bit more later. But she's okay. like irregular for a sanitation worker. Like she's a little too big and a little ugly. And so then they come and they're like, oh, you're a regular. We're going to kill you. Oh, no. And then this this other class of bee, the uh, the sage bees. Um, Like this this one particular sage bee comes and says, hey, don't kill her. I want to like I want to try some experiments first for a while. And so this sage bee like takes her to the bee nursery and like has her start like feeding the baby like bee larva with this stuff that's the called the babies the ba- yeah the babies with stuff that's called flow that like comes out of her mouth and it's really like royal jelly is the name that I think we would call it but it's like sure, the sure. goop the goop that bee larvae float in and eat and stuff just get a little grossed out but okay so so that kicks this book off. You're following this one this one bee who's born into a certain kind of life but who is obviously like from the outset sort of special. So is she have she does 
she doesn't have like a Neo in the Matrix moment where it's like she decides that or learns that she's special. It's from the outset she's been getting like slightly different treatment. Kind of, yeah. Okay. And then she's just also um, abnormally large and strong for like a bee of her class. And so like later on in the book, she becomes a, a forager. And like normally sanitation workers do not leave the hive, do not get to go do this stuff. But she gets to go and like fly around and grab pollen and nectar from flowers. And 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 she's she's like very into serving the hive and the queen who everybody loves. I imagine most bees are wicked into serving the hive. Yeah, like all all bees love the queen. All bees love serving the hive. Though there are like there are different degrees to which this is true. Okay, and so the the arc of the book you're seeing through the through Flora's eyes, and though you know she how her many name, does she have? Hmm. How many eyes does she have? Two, like bee eyes, but I don't. <laughs> eyes don't eyes don't matter. Antenna matter. Okay. Because that's how you that's how you like smell things and sense things like there's a sequence where a bunch of bees are fighting a wasp in the hive and Flora climbs on top of the thing and breaks its antennas off. And then the book talks about how the wasp is like blinded. So it's, ah. it's less about what the eyes are doing and more about what the antenna are doing. Okay. And like the antenna are also how bees communicate. Like there is some bee dancing in this, which I like. Ooh. But uh, antenna like th- she's there are a lot of sequences where she's trying to hide something from other bees and it's like she's sealing her antenna up so other bees can't like get into her head into her mind yeah basically like she's like foil wrapping her yeah so it's like it's like the bee it's like a biologically accurate version of like thought police basically that sounds awful Um, so the arc of the book is you're you're tracing the life of this hive through flora's eyes and but she is like Flora is the name of her class, but it's also the name of like her as an individual. So when we say Flora from now on, we're going to be referring to this specific bee unless we'd specifically say otherwise. Okay. Um, she is, has been born into this sort of crappy summer where it's a little too cold and a little too rainy and the bees are having enough trouble getting uh, honey for the hive. And also there are very early, signs and it's like sacrilege to bring this up but there are very early signs that the queen is getting sick and like not all is well with the queen Mm. which is a big deal because like the queen lays all the eggs and like the the bee turnover rate between like old age being like a bee that dies of old age is going to do it in like a year or a year and a half and um like a lot of them die for a lot of other reasons. Like you need to have a lot of, a lot of bees getting cranked out like all the time. Okay. And, um, it's kind of like the way the book deals with that. Like the reality of that is interesting because there is this really thin line between individual bees. So like flora, the bee, and then like the class that bee belongs to. So like the flora class. Yeah. Um, so there are like the, the sage bees who are like the high priestesses. And then there are these bees called the teasels that uh, run the nursery. And like you, there is continuity because the older ones like share their memories through their antenna with the, with the younger ones. But it's also like the giver. Yeah. Kind of like the giver, but it also like doesn't, it often does not matter like which individual bee it is that you're it's just talking that to. yeah it's just that memory is being pushed yeah and that a group of people or bees 
are doing a thing. Like it's every like, every once in a very great while, it becomes clear that we're talking about one individual bee, but otherwise you're just kind of talking about them as like a class of bees. Is it, I know you made a Battlestar reference earlier. Is it like worth for our TV fans, like thinking of the Cylons and how like they function as groups for the most part? And then every once in a while, one will have like an opinion. Yeah, I suppose if you want to do that, that's fine. And okay. and continuing like the Cylon thing, nobody but the queen is supposed to be able to lay eggs. But every once in a while, you're going to find a worker bee who can do it. And Flora can do it. Uh-oh. And it is sacrilege for anybody who isn't the queen to lay eggs. And this... This is one of the areas where the biology of how bees work and the stuff that happens in the book is like if you're if you just read the book without knowing a bunch about bees and then you go to look some stuff up, you're like, oh, what? Bees actually do that? That's insane. What? Okay, so drop some bee truth bombs on me. All right, so this is this is from an interview that uh, that Laylene Paul did with IO9, the uh, the sci fi arm of the gawker media empire sure sure and this is just this is all stuff from her about about writing this book and like the inspiration for writing it and like why it why it came so easily to her i guess is um i realized i had to write the bees because when i started to read about the actual creature there were so many extraordinary entomological facts like the annual massacre of the males and the fact that drones do no work their whole lives that my ins- that my imagination was fired. I suddenly saw this celebrity sexual minority whose entire raison d'etre is to mate, and to, and so long as they go for that goal with gusto, the rest of the time they can do as they please. Drones can't even feed themselves and even defecate in the hive. So first of all, I was going to write it from the POV of a drone who somehow manages to miss the massacre, because if a drone actually does this, when it's all over, his sisters will let him live. Uh, then I found out about the one in 10,000 rarity of the sterile female worker who will spontaneously begin forming eggs in her body to the consternation of certain of her sisters who even biologists refer to as the fertility police. These real squads of bees will search for the laying worker, hunt her down and kill her and eat her eggs. This is real biology and really scary to imagine. And then there's the brutal phenomenon of how the princesses will seek each other out and fight to the death until only one is left alive to rule and be queen. Life behind those beehive walls is really stranger than anything I could imagine, so I just rushed to write the story. This stuff all happens in the book. <laughs> I like the I like this vibe that she has of like I went into the front lines of the hive and you guys you won't believe it. It's crazy in there. <laughs> but yeah, like when I say that this book is a lot like the handmaid's tale, I think that that like the scene where the all the female bees who who are like referred to as sisters gather around and kill yep. all the male bees oh yeah they had totally. previously been like very subservient to mm-hmm. it was the most like overtly handmaid's taily because it really it evokes that sequence especially the one kind of toward the end where all the uh women are like rushing and killing the, the supposed criminals yeah the participation yeah which i which i only after a couple of weeks of rehearsal realized that it was like a participatory execution that's, yeah, it's a portmanteau, but yeah. a ta- but like terrible. Yeah, 
but so it's not just it, like there's that element there's the rigid cast system rigid cast system there is that some, is fertility um, based like right? especially once the queen is discovered to like is is acknowledged to be sick and like dies and is killed um like for the sake of the rest of the hive and then like the sage bees and the teasel bees start this sort of war to produce a princess who will take over and the sages are like well we are we have been ordained like we are the rulers of the hive and the teasels are like it doesn't matter like it's all you like any bee that is born if you feed it in a certain way it can become any kind of bee oh weird yeah weird Oh no! Which I assume is also bee biology. I didn't look up that specific part, but but um, that's that's like that's like the American dream, but for bees. <laughs> if you just get the it's it's Malcolm Gladwell. It's the hive outliers. on the hill. It's the it's hive, the on, hive the hill. on the hill. It's outliers for bees. It's if you just get ten thousand hours, you can be whatever kind of bee you want to be. So there's <laughs> there's all this strife in the hive, <laughs> and. It, like there's this big climactic scene where like the sage princess and the teasel princess like fight each other. Oh, but man. okay, so Flora can lay eggs. Yes, she is the one in ten thousand worker, and so she spends most of the book. She lays three eggs. The first two die. Okay. Um, the first is discovered and destroyed, even though like people don't know that she's the one who laid it, but. It's destroyed. And then the second she hides more carefully, but a human comes and like pulls out some of the honey and like inadvertently destroys the egg in doing that. And that's Ooh. one of like three times where humans show up in the book at all. We're the worst. Yeah, we, we kind of suck. Um, what she's going to do with the third egg. So she lays the third egg, right? And then it grows up into its own princess. Uh Oh, like so. So Flora has been like straddling these different cast lines the whole book. She she lays this egg and she only like she only starts laying eggs after she gets to attend the queen. Like she kills that wasp and everybody is like, dang, a sanitation worker killed a wasp. Like what? <laughs> and she gets to attend the queen for a couple days. And what like when she's in the presence of the queen, she first feels like her first egg like forming in her. So there's sort of a like the sense of succession of like a line of succession going on, even though that's like not a thing in bee society. Yeah, that's that's some like fudgy bee bee storytelling right there. Right, and, and it's it's actually one of the things about the book that's a little it's not frustrating, but it's a little obvious. Like it's it's less engaging than the rest of it is. Like it's pretty obvious that either she is going to be the mother of the next queen or she's going to be the next queen or like so she's going to be tied up in the fate of the next queen in some way. And that's like hella telegraphed. Yeah. But why else would you tell her story? Yeah. I mean, like, I, and I totally get that. Like I'm not, I'm not naming that even as a criticism of the book. It's just like when you are reading it and you spend a long, long time just like being with Flora and learning all this stuff about the hive. And it's very, it's like, it's very fun to read, but like, the point, like the capital P point of the book is not evident until uh, a little later on. I don't know. Uh, yeah. I, I wonder if it's, I wonder if what you're feeling is that it's instead of being explicitly about a transcendent B from, from the top, it's like 
hanging around in this Atwood Hive for a while, which is like a cool literary place to hang out in. Yeah, and it's just it, it's there's a lot of world building before it gets to saying the th- the stuff that it's got to say, or at least or at least be the be the hero story it's going to oh be. Gosh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> You're the one doing the book. I got to be the, you this week, okay? The, oh, wow. Is this what I'm like? <laughs> <laughs> the world building is super good. And I'm not like, I'm not, I'm not even trying to complain. I'm just like saying, if you were reading this book and if you're coming in cold like that, you'll, you'll notice that like without. Sure, 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 sure. Without the book, like telling you. It. Without any help whatsoever. Yeah, right. Okay. Um. So yeah, she she has this third she has this third egg and it like gets in a fight with the sage princess and then all the bees are driven from the hive from this like invasion from wasps and there there's this whole like sub thing throughout the book where like wasps and ants and bees all like descend from common ancestry and have like a really rough like shared tongue but like also resent each other for like the different choices that they made. What choices like did they? Bees, bees are all hoity-toity because they make all this honey and they gather okay. nectar and stuff. Uh, and, and wasps are more like predatory or whatever. Yeah, like they took the gifts of beedom and used it to hunt. Yeah, and bees and, like are all like, oh, we're better than wasps because we decided to do all this honey stuff. And are ants just like resentful? Like you were like us ants once. Ants are just like simpletons, basically. Like they're the <laughs> ones who have the rough like shared tongue as they're just like on the ground, no wings, just scavenging being ants. This is like bug's life, but Ants only sad. show up like one time. This is like okay. the, the Woody Allen movie Ants. You love that that movie With exists because it's a it's great, so stupid it's a that great it exists. punching bag for you. It's a great punching bag for everyone. Is it Woody Allen? Patrick is Patrick Warburton in that film? I believe he is. Okay, just like, checking. That's a guy who does great work, and he's been in some really crappy things. Yep, he's yep. in Space Chimps. He, oh wow! Okay. <laughs> I prefer to think of him as David Putty, but yeah, alas, well, we can't all maybe. we can't all have what we want. Yeah, right. Um, okay, so what else? What else do you need to know? Like, what else do we need to talk about? about I don't, this book. Like, it's. I want to talk about how the characters are rendered. We talked a little bit earlier about how sometimes you're talking about one bee, sometimes you're talking about a whole cast of bees. How does she? And I mean the author, not Flora. Right. Uh, render emotion and feeling in a way that feels like not out of place. I don't know what the equivalent to anachronistic is because I'm talking about rather than across time, I'm talking about across species. But like an anaspeciesist. <laughs> how how do the things that that feel like anthropomorphization of bees work? If that makes you know what I mean? Yeah, so so you get I mean it talks a lot about love. Like I've just done a Kindle search for the word love throughout this entire book and actually it's it's taking some extra time to turn through <laughs> all of them. But um so you get a lot of za- examples of like oh the queen's love, like the queen loves all her children and uh, uh yeah it shows up 100 the word love or some version of it shows up 126 times in this book. And okay. it's a 338-page novel, so that's a lot. It's like once so. every three pages at least. Yeah. 
Um, so you get the, like the queen is sort of like in the same way that she's the only one who can lay eggs. She's the only one who can like love all of her children and everybody sure. else is just kind of like serving the hive. And there are actually some, these sequences where all the bees sort of like come together and act as one sort yes. of unprompted. Like they're hearing this voice out of nowhere. And like, that's the hive mind. Like that's how that is represented in the book. And do you, is, cool. is it pretty clear when that's happening? And it, yeah, it's it usually, cool. it's usually in all caps. And then she mentions the hive mind right after. Oh, so great. yeah, okay. it's, it's usually lined outlined pretty clearly. I, I'm, um, I'm always fascinated by how writers attempt to like portray different versions of consciousness in in sci-fi or mm-hmm. you wouldn't even ne- i wouldn't necessarily call this sci-fi it whatever it is it's b fiction i don't know <laughs> uh but like you have to find ways to get a human mind to think about another type of mind and then like there's the other line between like bees and, and love is drawn between uh the forager bees who you know flora kind of works her way up into that class and flowers and they're like there are a lot uh there's a lot of language about bees looking for flowers and then flowers also like luring bees sure like sure. using a lot of scents and stuff to like to, to to lure the bees in and like get all the nectar and stuff like it's a, it's a mutually beneficial relationship because bees help pollinate flowers and it's all like it's all good for everybody <laughs> okay and then there's and then at the toward the end of the book when flora has had this third child and is trying to protect it from the sages. Like there's this, there's the sage bee who comes upon her and finds her. And it's, it's heavily implied that this is the same sage bee from the beginning of the book that like singled her out and like okay. saved her from being killed in the first place. And it's like Flora has the capacity to like love this child that she's had. Like, like no drone should be able to, to do that. Mm hmm. Love, Sister Sage had the little girl in her claws and held her up in front of her mother's face. That is what the flowers are for. Foragers may lust to their heart and bodies content for them, but the sacrament of birth is beyond you. Flora's baby screened and writhed in the priestess's grip, and the sage struck her across the face. No lock or bonds could hold back Flora's rage. She tore her child from the priestess's grasp, and before Sister Sage could utter another word, with a mighty blow, Flora knocked her off her feet. The priestess twisted her long abdomen up in all directions, stabbing at Flora so that the air filled with a cloud of venom. But Flora had fought a wasp. She tore off the priestess's pounding antenna. Then she slid her dagger between the glossy bands, waiting until she felt the pulse of Sister Sage's beating heart. Only then did she pump her venom, strong and steady, until the priestess lay still. So, like, there's some emotion. Sure. And there's, like, there's a bee who is, who is, like, she's been kind of transcending class lines this whole time. Yeah, yeah. But she, like, she shouldn't be able to love this thing that she's had, because it's, like, not, like, she's not a queen. It's not supposed to be in her nature but she still like does. I don't know. Does that does that answer your question at all? Like it's 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 an interesting line and I I one of the things I was surprised the most about in doing my research is like how often I had sort of picked something out as like mostly creative licensee sort of anthropomorph anthropomorphizing yeah, yeah. of the bees and it ended up being like really strongly rooted in the biology of how bees actually work. Yeah, and that I wonder gets into the science around emotion and psychology uh 
and like bio, you know, neuroscience stuff about like why do we have the impulses that we do that which of them come from evolution and which of them come from if you know something else right yeah right because because like a mother reacting like that to protect her child is simultaneously i think like a hard-coded sort of biology thing mm-hmm. but also i think if you're a human reading that like you you see it as a distinctly human thing also Yes, even though it is a it is a an evolutionary imperative. <laughs> like Yeah, but like there's there's a lot of a lot of humanity in in that sort of a gesture, right? Where like some like like you might find like especially in like a bee society where everything is about the hive and everything's about like the the importance of the group over the importance of like the individual that some bee can like transcend that yes feels very like human and i think is intended in this book to feel human what else do you think in this book is is purposefully set up as an analogy for for something that we understand pretty well um there is this particular male so i talked about um paul's interview before where she was talking about how you know if a male can survive that massacre he's gonna survive he's gonna like you know, be alive. And so there's this one particular male named Lyndon. Uh, that's, that's his, his sort of, uh, class, I guess. Like there are different, there's just like different Lyndon bees every year. Like it's a certain type of drone mm-hmm. that comes up every now and again. And he is, I mean, all the drones are dicks. They're seriously <laughs> like straight up dicks, like super lewd, super like misogynist, have all their needs tended to from the moment they hatch and are like okay. super entitled and, and awful and like pretty much like every negative male stereotype you could think of like that's what a drone is. sure of course but there's this this Lyndon B who who every once in a while seems humble and so he and Flora like develop the sort of rapport that like late in the book again is re- like referred to as love it's another example of flora like finding this love where she maybe biologically strictly speaking should not be able to and then this bee ends up like fertilizing the new queen and like saving the hive in the end like it's it's the relationship between flora and linden is sort of cast in human terms and then at the end you know linden sort of impregnates flora's daughter who is now the queen and there's like this element of like sacrifice yes like it's it's like a the love between the two of them was forbidden but like this is how this is how they can make it count for something that feels sort of human if that makes sense yeah yeah that's just it gets that got that gets a little more spoilery than i guess i wanted to but the thing about reading this book is it's like what happens is is interesting but what's way more like what's way more valuable about the book i think is the World building and then also the way that that Paul combines the the animal the with the human in yeah. ways that are that are really subtle and seamless and and yeah, like I said, like it's it's you read stuff about how bees work and it's surprising how human Paul has made that feel like in the prose of the book. Mm, mm-hmm. Uh and one last thing before we get out of here. Mm-hmm. Is there is some of sometimes when when stories focus on an animal or focus on a a type of creature there is 
It's not just like, oh, that kid's relationship with Willie was so cool. That whale was the best. Uh, there's like an environmental angle to it. Now, from the bees' perspective, that would be hard to argue. But is there an element to this book? Or even is there stuff as reading the book that kind of sheds new light on stuff for you or makes you think a little bit harder about where you get like where you get your honey bears from or something i don't i mean not explicitly i don't think like i think there's there's maybe a little tiny bit of that stuff in there like there's a uh there's a line on paul's website it takes 12 bees their entire lives to gather enough nectar to make one teaspoon of honey it should be priced like gold Mm, okay that's like I think that sentiment comes through a little bit like this is the kind of stuff that we as humans do not appreciate because we're so far removed from it. Like how many dinosaurs had to melt to make your credit card kind of thing. Yeah, exactly like that. Yeah. I like just carrying around a Stegosaurus in my pocket. It's nice. I can't believe you said that. Why? That's That's you open me up. You like, I know it's like if a basketball man, like, Pass me something for an alley oop, and then I shot it. And he's like, "I cannot believe you made that basket." So let me do it. Why you always gotta be the Larry Bird to my Michael Jordan? I am laughing really hard, and I'm also like kind of sad. Like what actually I was reacting to was that like I opened a door, and then I didn't like what came through it, and mm-hmm. it like made me sad about dinosaurs. And then you made a bunch <laughs> of basketball goofs that I couldn't process while I was also feeling sad. Can we, can we end the show? Can but I, I thought I, I think I had an answer to your question. That was about environmentalism. No, it's, I I don't think there is. There are too many explicit notes of that, but there are like sequences where bees are dying of like what is obviously pesticide. Okay, sure. And like there there are gatherers who are trying to like go to these flowers and like and pick up and pick up nectar and pollen and stuff because the hive needs it. And they actually just end up like dying and bringing disease back to the hive and being ostracized and and punished for something that really was not their fault. God. But uh, yeah, like there's a very disturbing sort of sequence about that in the middle of the book just about. But other than that, I don't think it's overtly environmental or like like Paul is not interested in grappling with weird diseases that are killing all the bees or like Africanized bees or whatever. Like she's just telling the story about bees It's and it has what is ultimately like an uplifting ending, but okay. There are a couple of, yeah, small things along the way that could, that make you think about that. It's not secretly trying to one, two punch you with where did all the bees go? No, 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 no. Yeah. I mean, the book could have done that if it wanted to, it could have ended with all the bees dying and like, and then an epilogue where the humans are like, I don't know where the bees went. What can we do? What do we do to kill all the bees? But no, I didn't do that. And then cut to the Lorax just crying. At yeah. The end. yeah. 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 Okay. Well, if you know where the bees went, you can email us at overduepod B-mail. at gmail.com. You can email us. <laughs> you can uh, hit us on the facebook.com slash overduepod or twitter.com slash overduepod. Uh, those are our social media accounts. I want to thank everyone who reached out in the past week, including Lee, Books at Park Place, Michael, Mailer Tay, Serious Rachel, Graham, Maria, Holly, Jonathan, who reads alone at pu- before pub trivia and no, that's not weird. Uh, Lee, 
who's going through our Lord of the Rings episodes. Turnbull85, who sent us some Buffy gifts. I would like more gifts on our Twitter account, please. Yeah, especially Eric, Buffy gifts. Yeah, especially. Eric, Matt, Daisy, Melissa, Jocko, Ray, Albie, Diane, Annie, Patty, Martha, Amber, and Erica. Thanks so much for reaching out to us. We really appreciate it. Andrew, if they were done with social media, but they still want to use the internet, where should they go to find out about our show? Uh, they should buzz over to OverduePodcast.com <laughs> where they can find links to our RSS feed, iTunes page, uh, Stitcher page. Those are all ways that you can subscribe to the show in your podcatcher of choice. Um, if you subscribe through iTunes, do rate and review us because that helps us rise up in the rankings, helps more people find the show, just helps us generally feel good about ourselves. Um, also on our website, we have links to our uh, Patreon project, which is a way you can uh, support the show financially, and to uh, HeadGum, our podcast network, uh, who has been very gracious to us and very helpful to us, and just we're, we're happy to be part of that family of podcasts. Um, anything else up there that anybody needs to know about, or you just want to talk about what you're reading next week? No, I'm going to read some Toni Morrison. It's going to be pretty cool. All right. Beloved, right? Beloved, yes. Yeah, Beloved, which is also about bees, weirdly. Weirdly. I didn't know that going in, but uh, that's what's happening, I guess. Yeah. And uh, thank you to uh, Squarespace, this week's sponsor. <laughs> if you go and build a Squarespace site and you like it and you want to make it a permanent thing, which surely you will, uh Use the promo code overdue and get what ten percent off? Is that something the deal? like that? Get some get some percentage of money off your purchase. It'll be good. We're That's good? it. We're good. We're, We're good. done. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. Um, we will see you next Monday. And until then, try to be happy. What a stinger that was. That was a HeadGum Podcast.